Well, if you want to grab your Bibles, you could probably just put a bookmark in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be there for uh, this morning and six more mornings after this. Uh, we, if you are uh, just a visitor here with this morning or just jumping into our conversation we've been having on Sunday mornings, we are making our way through the Beatitudes, which are those eight statements that Jesus makes at the very front end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Last week, we uh, gave close and careful study to the first of these statements, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this morning, we're going to be looking at statement number two, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, these eight statements, traditionally called the Beatitudes, which is a uh, kind of a $5 word meaning supreme blessedness or happiness. I'm well aware as I throw the word Beatitude out there that most of us, that's not a word we ever use, have ever heard in common English speech, but that's what it means. The great truth behind these eight statements is that our God wants us to be happy. That's what the Beatitudes are, the supreme blessedness or happiness. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus is telling us the right way to go after it. The path to happiness that Jesus maps out for us in these eight statements is kind of surprising. Maybe even counterintuitive, and really it's the precise polar opposite of how we have been trained in the world to be seekers after happiness, pursuers of happiness. There is nothing wrong about your deep, inborn desire to be happy. No, what's wrong, disastrously wrong, is what humanity is seeking happiness in. You, your designer, your creator God, gave you this deep, inborn longing for happiness. And that is not wrong in and of itself. What is so disastrously wrong, again, is how humanity is seeking to fill that happiness void. In last week's message, we saw that the Greek word for blessed, blessed is the word at the beginning of all eight of these statements. It's makarios in the Greek. comes at the beginning of each of these statements, and it essentially means happy. But when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, Whatever translation you use, whatever English word you use to translate makarios, it is an awkward pairing at best with the Greek word pentheo, meaning mourning or lament. It's really kind of hard to get our minds around how these two things can exist together. How can Jesus really say, blessed, happy are those who mourn? Like oil and water, happiness and mourning, makarios and pentheo seem to be mutually exclusive concepts that do not mix well. But in this verse that we're going to be giving time and concentration to this morning, Jesus gives our minds a vigorous shaking that mixes the two together into one singular statement. And he means it somehow. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning is, to say the least, a surprising entry point into blessed happiness. What does Jesus mean by this? This is our task this morning, to dig down and get to the bottom of this mystery. Let's begin by praying and asking God to help us as we explore what all this means. Dear Heavenly Father, we need your help. 
(laughs) God, there is much that you say in your word that is easily grasped, and then there are some verses that we encounter that are real head-scratchers. We have to relearn so much to grasp the deep, essential meaning of what Jesus is saying. And so, God, I, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would help me this morning, that in the midst of all this I would not say anything amiss, Uh, or anything that would distract from what is most needed and what is closest to your heart as we worship you now in the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're Christians. We're followers of Jesus, which is to say we are sincere from the heart imitators of him. So we should start there. Uh, Let me first just make an observation about Jesus. It's a bit of a dangerous observation to make because it might amount to an argument from silence which is always dangerous. It's a logical fallacy. You shouldn't do that. So this is not really an argument or a point, really. It's just an observation. It's just something interesting to note. Isn't it striking that nowhere in all the Bible is there any record of Jesus ever laughing? Isn't that interesting? It does not exist. I tried to find it this week. (laughs) I couldn't find it. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure Jesus laughed. I'm not trying to make an argument from silence to say that Jesus never told a joke or appreciated one. He was fully human. Laughter is a great gift from God, and there is nothing wrong with laughing. And I'm sure Jesus had a fully developed funny bone to go with his humanity. It is just that when the gospel writers put pen to paper and sought to give us a sense of who Jesus was, very specifically about his teaching and his identity, and very generally about his emotional posture towards what was going on around him. They never once mention laughter. This is not the main thing the Bible would have us see about the emotional life of our Lord in those years that he spent in earthly ministry. Although the biblical writers never mention Jesus laughing, they do mention that he was sometimes angry. We're told that he hungered, thirsted, and that he became tired. In Isaiah 53, a prophecy concerning the coming Jesus, Jesus is described as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The Bible tells us that he wept at the grave of Lazarus. And those tears are really kind of mysterious because they were likely not shed because his friend had died. That seems unlikely because why had Jesus gone to the tomb of Lazarus? If anything, there would have been a merry twinkle in his eye, I would think, as he thought about what was about to be unleashed. All these people are about to have the surprise of their life. Lazarus, come forth. He knew it was going to happen. I don't think he was crying because Lazarus had died. No, those tears were most likely motivated by something other than common loss or grief over the loss of a friend. We see something similar in Luke 19 when Jesus wept over Jerusalem before going to the cross. This is the picture of Jesus that the Bible paints for us. This is the emotional palette that the gospel writers gave us. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, weeping over a wayward city, 
Jesus was not inclined to whistle past the graveyard. No, the holy, holy, holy stood in the midst of this wreckage, the wretched misery and carnage of a fallen, broken world stained deeply with sin and stinking of death, and he wasn't cutting up or cracking jokes. He wept. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As we look at Jesus and his emotional posture toward the fallen depravity all around him, we begin to see what Jesus meant when he said this. I think one of the reasons I just want to point this out is not to give you the impression in your minds that Jesus was somehow severe or just a Debbie Downer or difficult to be around. Certainly not. I don't think so. I think if we had spent time with Jesus, we would have just really enjoyed being with him. I think he was fun. I I think he's the God of fun. He's the God who invented us with laughter, and that's altogether right and good. I don't think he would be this, like, super severe presence. The only reason I point this out is because in my experience growing up in the church, I have been in many churches and around, frankly, many pastors who had this habit of, of portraying the Christian life as though you must put on a plastic smile and be always chipper. (laughs) right? If you're a Christian, you should be smiling all the time. If you're a Christian, you should be upbeat and positive. If you're a Christian, nothing should ever get you down. And I say hogwash. (laughs) We're followers of a guy who's described in the Bible as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, who insofar insofar as the Bible records, never laughed. I believe he did laugh. But that's not what the Bible wants us to know about him. But what I do want you to see here is we need to get to the bottom of what Jesus meant. We still haven't gotten around to this. One of the most important things I think we can see here is that Jesus is speaking to a spiritual reality, not a natural one. A spiritual mourning, not a natural mourning. Uh, This is one of many places where God's word calls us to hold seemingly opposing concepts in tandem. Uh, A a verse I quote a lot uh, is in Matthew 10, 16, Jesus told his disciples, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Uh, And those are two mutually exclusive concepts. How can you be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove? Those two are opposites, but Jesus told them to be both at the same time. What I find, though, is most Christians tend to pinball between the two. They're, they're pragmatic and shrewd, or they're wide-eyed idealists, and they have a trouble holding the two things together. But what Jesus called his disciples to was a shrewd innocence. Be a serpent kind of a dove. That's what he called us to. And here we find something, something similar. By the way, I could quote many more passages. This is another one. In 2 Corinthians 6.10, Christians are described as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Hmm. (laughs) Blessed mourning. Happy sadness. Somehow the fullness of what God is calling us to is found in holding these two together at the same time and not choosing one over the other. 
It's not like to be a real Jesus follower, you have to be very severe and serious and sober and sad all the time. And it's also true that you're not upbeat and chipper and always positive with a plastic smile on. Both of these would be like pinballing between blessedness and mourning. And somehow, brothers and sisters, we have to hold the two together. We have to be, as the Bible describes us, a people who are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. A people who are blessed in their status as mourners. I think that one of the great barriers to understanding the fullness of what Jesus meant when he said this is that we naturally, almost automatically, associate this saying about blessed are those who mourn with that type of mourning that follows the death of a loved one. I think automatically when people say blessed are those who mourn, maybe it's the English word, I don't know, but that idea of mourning is almost instantly and permanently attached to the idea in our minds of after somebody we love dies. Blessed are those who mourn. They must be talking about people who have lost a loved one. And we need to expand our minds because last week when we talked blessed are the poor in spirit, we saw that that had very little to do with what Jesus meant. Not nothing to do, but very little to do with one's financial status. He was talking about something much bigger than that, wasn't he? And this talk of mourning is similarly speaking to a spiritual state of mourning rather than the natural sort of mourning common to all human beings following a great loss. It's not that it has nothing to do with that. There is some overlap. It's just that it's not primarily about that. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Let me suggest three ways that Jesus meant when he talked about mourning here. First thing I think he means when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, is that we are to be uh, blessed are those, happy are those, who are made able to mourn their own status as a dead person. <laughs> you, ever, you guys remember in Mark, Twain, uh, Mark Twain's uh, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn? I always get the two mixed up. I can't remember which one is Tom Sawyer and which is Huckleberry Finn. Which one attended his own funeral? You guys might remember. One of them did. Look it up. Google it. Have you guys ever wanted to attend your own funeral? Hear what people would say about you at your funeral? Well, the Bible tells us this. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, it begins with this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The first thing you have to mourn in this world in order to be comforted is your own status as a dead person. (laughs) You must. Look at this pattern of mourning followed by blessed comfort in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." There in those verses, verses 1 through 3, top to bottom, this is Paul in a full-throated expression of mourning. You were dead. You were an object of wrath. You were following after the desires of the flesh, the body and the mind. 
But then he transitions in verse 4 into full comfort mode. (laughs) But, one of the most glorious buts in all the Bible, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are made aware that they are dead in their trespasses and sin, for then they are primed to see, appreciate, receive the gospel, the good news, that God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we were dead, made us alive with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. The person who truly mourns because of their sinful state will be truly blessed and truly happy in the end because conviction must, of necessity, precede conversion. Before there can ever be the comforting good news of the gospel, there must be the bad news of our sinfulness and death. The person who truly mourns because of his sinful state and condition is a person who is going to repent and is indeed probably beginning to repent already. And what is repentance but a turning away from sin toward what is infinitely better and more happiness bringing? It's a turning toward the promised comfort of grace. The Bible tells us plainly that we are all sinners and that the wages of sin is death. And unless we are led by the Spirit to mourn our status as an object of wrath, we can never know the blessed, happy comfort of grace. No one can come to know Jesus as Savior who has not first trembled in fear at the thought of him as one's judge. God is good, but he is not safe, says C.S. Lewis. He is good, he is righteous, he is merciful, he is full of grace. But the reality of judgment and wrath is very real. And only those who have mourned can then be called truly blessed because they have received the comfort of grace, salvation. As the author of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this is, I think, the first and and possibly the most important meaning of what Jesus says when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's saying, blessed are those who have mourned their own sinfulness and have turned in repentance towards grace, forgiveness, and they are then comforted in that reality. They are blessed and happy because they have been brought along that path of mourning and repentance and receiving of the gospel. So this is, but this is not only true as it relates to one's conversion. We are not just talking about the entry point into Christian faith here. It is also something that continues to be true about the Christian even after they have put their trust in Jesus for salvation. For even after becoming a Christian, we will still, I know this might surprise you, but we will still at times stumble and sin. 
But because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this will result in a sort of mourning over our moral failings. But that, in turn, turns us back to Christ, and the moment we go back to Christ, our peace and happiness return, and we are comforted. This is a cycle that plays out over and over and over again in the life of a Christian. We mourn our sin, and then we're comforted by grace. This is a daily reality for followers of Jesus who are continually stumbling, mourning, repenting, and being assured in their spirits by the comforting reality of grace, that Jesus paid it all. We're constantly comforted by the words of our God to us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That our standing in favor before God is not rooted in our goodness, but in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Every time I sin, and I do sin spectacularly at times, we all do. We stumble, we fall, we're made of dust. When we do sin, I mourn. Oh God, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe I said that in a moment of anger. I can't believe it. God, I'm so sad. I'm so mournful over what happened. And then I turn to Christ. I remember the cross. I remember Jesus died for it all. And I'm comforted. (laughs) And I'm happy. I'm happy that I don't have to bear up under the weight of perfection. That's not mine to bear. Isn't this a happy verse, 1 John 1, 9? Isn't this a happy verse? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a happy thing? The path into the happiness we feel when we receive and believe what our God is saying to us in that verse begins, though, with mourning over the sin. Blessed are those who have a posture of mourning towards their own sinfulness, for they will be comforted in the grace that I am giving. There is comfort there. This is the path to happiness. Jesus said something, this man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, said this to us in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's talking there about the fact that he is going to take the burden of what is necessary to be saved completely off your shoulders. (laughs) He's going to do for you what you can't do. When he says you will find rest for your souls, He is saying the opposite of the dominant religious tradition and the culture into which he first spoke those words, which is that the way to find favor and standing with God is by to check all the boxes. You do all the do's and you do not do all the do-nots, and in the end, you will have leveraged God into a position where he's in debt to you. He owes you something. Jesus goes, nope, that's not how it works. The only way to find rest for your souls is to come to me, all you who are weary, labor and heavy laden, and I'm going to give you rest. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are those who mourn their sin, lay the burden down, and let me shoulder it. You're going to be comforted in the truth of the grace and the gospel. 
And this is not only true for people who are first becoming a Christian, it is a cycle that plays out over and over and over again daily, many times daily in the life of a Christian, where we sin, the Holy Spirit makes us aware of it, we mourn it, we repent, we turn to Christ, we're comforted, we're happy that the Bible's promises are true and they belong to me. However, it doesn't stop there. Christians do not only mourn for their own sins. We also mourn for the sins of others. We are not a people for whom the world ends at the tip of my nose. (laughs) I am not only concerned with this, I am concerned with all of that. I'm concerned for my neighbor. And I know my friends at State Road Advent Christian Church well enough to know that you mourn the state of things in the world. We mourn the state of our society. The true Christian spirit does not look on the sinfulness of others or in the world and respond with contemptuous disgust, but rather with a compassionate mourning. Jesus looked at unhappiness and suffering, confusion, He looked at a people reeling from war and famine and disease, riddled through and through with the rot of misshapen longings and disordered desires, and his eyes didn't glare at us. He wept. The whole world is in an unhealthy and unhappy condition, and a question that confronts my heart is, do I mourn for these? who have not yet learned to mourn their own sinfulness and seek comfort in the gospel, do I mourn for them or do I just wish they would get what's coming to them? Do I glare or do I weep? What's on your face as you watch the news? This, by the way, is why Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. This is why he was crying. He was not crying because Lazarus was dead. He was crying because of the mourning all around him, the brokenhearted hopelessness as humanity confronts death, the sin that brings it about, the brokenness, the wretchedness, the misery. Jesus wept because he loves you. He hates all this, this brokenness, this disordered chaos, this wreckage. He wept. This is why he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He looked on the hideous reality of sin and its consequences, and he mourned the state of things. You know, in Luke 6.25, we find a parallel recording of the Beatitudes. Luke writes down or chose to emphasize different things that Jesus said or wrote them in a different way. Probably Jesus said both. And the two gospel writers chose to emphasize different sets of things that Jesus said. But in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is quoted as saying this, Woe to those who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. In other words, he said both. He said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he said, Woe to those who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And when we put these two things together, I think we see the fullness of what Jesus means here. A pronouncement of woe upon a person is the opposite of a person, of saying a person is blessed. Woe to those and blessed are, are opposites in the pronouncement that's being made. 
Jesus says, woe to those who laugh now, thereby describing the posture of the world towards the wickedness that surrounds them. It's the opposite of when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. And the second half of these two verses are also opposite in their language. Those who laugh now will mourn and weep. Those who mourn will be comforted. The world says, eat, drink, and be merry. They say, dance and dance and put away from your mind the fact that in the end we all will have to pay the fiddler. Just put it out of your mind. Just dance. The one who laughs now, whose heart delights in wickedness, the world and the things of the world, will in the end, Jesus says, mourn and weep. But the one who mourns now over all this brokenness and sin will laugh and rejoice in the end when all this is swept away and replaced. We see a sort of a, a heart posture towards laughing at broken wickedness in the movement of some mainline denominations today to call sin something other than what's wrong. They label sin good, right, virtuous. It's a celebration of wickedness, not a mourning over it. It's an embrace rather than mourning. And again, I say, don't look at those folks and glare. <laughs> Weep, <laughs> mourn, be filled with compassion, concern. As we look at the world today, and hey, even as we look at ourselves, guys, we have loads of reasons to mourn. We groan and grieve in our spirits, but the Bible comforts us with some amazing truths that although not yet fully realized, have nevertheless been given to us by promise. And because with God his promises are as sure and certain as his eventual performance, these things can be described as already but not yet. It says, this is an interesting verse because not only does Jesus compare blessedness and mourning, but he also uses two different tenses. He says, blessed are and shall be comforted. <laughs> he speaks in the present tense at the beginning of the sentence and the future tense at the end of the sentence. And any of you Nazi grammar Nazis will say, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I'm not going to correct Jesus on his language, but that's odd. Blessed are today for you will be comforted already, but not yet. His promise is the same as his performance. When Jesus writes a check, you can take it to the bank. It never bounces. We know there is a day of glory coming. We know that there is a day that will dawn when Jesus will return and sin will be no more. There will be new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. This is a blessed hope, a happy thing to train our hearts and minds on. And those who mourn the present broken reality will in that day laugh and be comforted. And those who think this is all a big lark, a joke, something to celebrate and embrace, will in that day mourn and weep. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What hope does the person have who does not believe the gospel? For the one who has not put their trust in Jesus for salvation, this world, think about this, this is as good as it gets. This is it. 
This is the highest summit of blessedness. This place of disease, wars, pandemics, brokenness, exploitation, violence, all sorts of misery, addiction, broken bodies, broken relationships, shattered dreams, everything you have will one day leave you or you will leave it. This is the very highest summit of joy and happiness for such a person. But for us, for believers who have been helped to mourn this order of things, a day of comfort and blessed happiness is coming. There is a better and an abiding possession. Even this light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. Jesus modeled this for us, by the way. In Hebrews 12, 2, we are told this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see what Jesus did? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And he calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want to close with this story. I, uh, I felt a little bad this week. I, I've got, I, I wrote my sermon towards the end of the week, and I realized at the end of the sermon I wanted to close with a different song. <laughs> so, so I did a very annoying thing. I texted Jen because I didn't have the guts to just call her and talk with her. <laughs> do, you guys, do you guys ever do that? It was late in the week, and I was like, Jen, I really would like to end on a different song. And uh, that's hard to do maybe towards the end of the week. But like always, the worship team was super gracious and rose to it. Uh, You guys have probably heard the story, some of you, of Horatio Spafford, the guy who wrote the famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, He lived from 1828 to 1888. He was a wealthy Chicago lawyer with a thriving legal practice. He had a beautiful home, a wife, four daughters, and a son. He was also a sincere follower of Jesus. His circle of friends there in Chicago included, among other well-known church leaders of the day, D.L. Moody. But over a span of less than two years, Spafford would suffer unimaginable loss. At the very height of his financial and professional success, Horatio and his wife Anna suffered the tragic loss of their young son. Shortly thereafter, on October 8, 1871, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed almost every real estate investment that the Spaffords had. In 1873, Spafford scheduled a boat trip to Europe in order to give his wife and daughters a much-needed vacation and time to recover from these successive tragedies. Spafford was delayed in going with them because he had some unexpected business that came up at the last minute, but he sent his wife and daughters on ahead of him while he was delayed in Chicago. Several days later, while home, while at home, he received notice that the ship his family had been traveling on had gone down. All four of his daughters had drowned, and only his wife had survived. With a heavy heart, Spafford boarded a boat that would take him to his grieving wife, who was waiting in England. And it was on this trip, as he was passing through the same waters where his daughters had drowned, 
that he penned the words to the now famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, the version we're going to sing is not the, the old hymn version, but m- much of the word and the sentiments are the same. And as we will see in just a minute when we sing this song together, this song paints a picture for us of a man whose heart is like a cozy cabin of blessedness in the midst of mourning. He is sorrowful, and yet he rejoices. The harder it storms outside, the cozier and more precious precious inside are the promises of God and the presence of God. And even though his children have died, even though his wealth has been stripped from him, even though his wife and himself are thrown into a deep depression, even though the cares and responsibilities of this world are piling up, he has built his life and is standing on the firm foundation of the gospel of peace. Jesus is not an inspiring figure to such a man as Horatio Spafford. He has become an inner reality. Jesus and the gospel have shaped Horatio Spafford's inner world, and it allows him to say, even in the midst of unimaginable loss and mourning, it is well with my soul. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the way that you have shown us that the path to the deepest happiness, the longest, most abiding happiness that mankind can know, is found in the very strange counterintuitive entry point of mourning. God, in order to lay hold of all that is yours, all that you would have us have of the kingdom, we must, force, we must first mourn the world and let go of it. Before we can ever lay hold of the perfect righteousness of Christ and be robed, clothed in it, we must first mourn our own wretched sinfulness. And God, before we can ever find joy in the midst of all this brokenness, and wreckage of the fallen, broken world we live in. Before we can ever find comfort in the promise of all that is to come, we must first mourn and stop loving all of this. Father, we ask your forgiveness for those times when we have fraternized with the world, when we have loved sin, when we have not mourned the waywardness within us, but God have loved it, celebrated it. God, we need your forgiveness. Father, teach us to mourn in this way that Jesus modeled for us. God, help us to look on the world not with disgust or contempt, but with a genuine compassion and concern. Father, give us the same spirit that Jesus had as he looked on the fallen world. And God, help us to see ourselves rightly also, not as disgusting sinners, as people you wouldn't want anything to do with, but as people who have been washed clean. Father, we know we, from last week's conversation, we have nothing to bring you but our need. But in our neediness, we've been made happy. God, in pulling back the curtain and revealing this world for what it is, we have mourned 
our sin, we've mourned our sinfulness, we've mourned the brokenness of this world, but in that mourning, we have been led by the gospel to appreciate your grace, and then surprisingly, we've found happiness. Father, thank you for showing this way, us this way. This is not how we have been trained to find happiness. So thank you for speaking to us by your Holy Spirit and your word this morning. In Jesus' name.